Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. Fair Cop is a group of individuals who have come together over shared concerns about British policing's attempt to criminalise people for expressing opinions that don't contravene any laws. Some of the founders, like my next guest, former Humberside Police Officer Harry Miller, have been spoken to, investigated and arrested by police following social media activity on sites like Twitter. Freedom of speech like one's right to protest, are critically important rights which exist in our Western democracies. However, when does free speech become offensive? And should our police services up and down the country be policing such complaints made by those who find offence to comments that don't break the law, which when police do act upon, can be seen by others as supporting or siding with politicised groups and not acting impartially? Recently, Harry Miller challenged and won, not only against Humberside Police on their actions against him and his Twitter activity, but also the College of Policing, who set out the guidelines for police services like Humberside Police to follow on non-hate crime incidents. Policing, in my view, has a critical role in supporting its diverse communities, who represent those that have been and continue to be the victims of abhorrent crimes, because of their beliefs and appearances. Harry Miller and his colleagues at Fair Cop are committed to working with the College of Policing, police forces, police and crime commissioners and other relevant authorities 
to improve the existing guidelines, ensuring they recognise citizens' freedom of expression while continuing to provide robust protection against real crimes that are truly motivated by hatred. In this episode of Protect and Serve, Harry and I discuss this very difficult task facing police and answer the all-important question, mixing politics and policing. All this and much more next on Protect and Serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve with me, Ollie Lawrence, here again for another fantastic episode and another incredibly interesting guest. You know, for the past oh, nearly 11 months, I've interviewed a number of police officers, uh, most of which are, are former former police officers of varying different ranks, service expertise. And, you know, one of the things we talk about during most of our episodes is the complexity of policing. And I think that the, the job of policing, and my next guest will know, no doubt agree with this has become more and more complex um, since probably the days of Peel and, and probably too complex in some areas where we get pulled into issues that probably policing was never designed uh, to get involved in but anyway my next guest comes from a policing background albeit relatively short one he's ha- had an impact and more importantly is having an even bigger impact outside of policing Harry Miller good evening welcome to the podcast how are you? I'm great, thank you, and thank you ever so much for having me on the show, Oliver. It's a, it's a real privilege. I've, I've, to be fair, my favourite audience is uh, former police officers and police officers because um, they, I, I, I kind of feel that they instinctively get what it is that that we're trying to do. So, yeah, welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no, absolute pleasure. So, like at the beginning of my podcast, like every good detective, we like to wind back the clock and go right to the beginning. And obviously your journey starts in Humberside Police back in 1989. I suppose I just want to get some idea as to the thought path and the decision to join policing and uh, and what led in, you led you in that direction. Uh, honestly, why, why did I join policing? I think I joined policing because I, I had a sense, like many people, I had a sense of right and wrong, wanting to do the right, you know, wanting to do the right thing, wanting to make society better. Um, all of that is true, but I think more importantly, I was at something of a loose end. Um, that's that's the honest truth about it, and I think that's probably why I wasn't the world's greatest police officer. Um, mm-hmm. I was I was one of those officers who, you know, you'd read out in the briefing in the morning a list of a list of people to look out for, a list of number plates to look out for, and you might as well have told it to me in braille because I wouldn't remember any of it. I just that sort of detail. <laughs> I'm I'm just phenomenally rubbish at you know unless somebody walks past me carrying a swag bag, um, then I probably wouldn't I probably wouldn't notice. So is that sort of that sort of brilliant police officers are fantastic at, at spotting detail, and I wasn't. I just wasn't. What I'm very good at and have always been good at is spotting patterns, uh, spotting motivations, that sort of thing. Well, in order to sort of deploy that skill, you've got to be fairly high up. Uh, in in the police or out of police altogether Um, and so I I think within a couple of years I'd realized that this probably wasn't going to be the career uh, it wasn't going to be the career for me Um, I was a graduate and they they wanted me to do the graduate um, promotion scheme as it was um, in the early you know way 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 back then it's not like now where you you're in it for two minutes and they make you an inspector it wasn't like that but nevertheless there was a there was a graduate program but I'd, I'd worked out, I think, within the first year, 18 months, that 
this probably wasn't the career uh, for me. So um, I did I did the right thing and sort of left and um, did something which I was much more, um, I think, suited for, which was entrepreneurial business. Um, so I I set up uh, I set up a business. I bought a, a small business on Immingham on the port of Immingham, Immingham Dock. Um, and I developed that and I turned it from um, a business that employed like four people and had like three or four old nasty machines. And um, by sort of 15, 20 years later, I was employing 100 people and we wow. had 30 or 40 machines and we were unloading the vast majority of the coal that, that was at the time coming into the UK uh, to power the power station. So I think I found I think I found what I was good at, which was being an entrepreneur and a businessman rather than being a, um, a, a, a uniformed officer. That's the that's the truth of the matter. Now, the, the policing angle comes, of course, because when the police visited my place of work in 2019 um, with regard to my Twitter account, the mystique of policing wasn't there with me. I wasn't instantly afraid of the police. And more than that, I, I retained a, a, a huge amount of knowledge of, of the law and criminal law. I've got mm. one of those brains that can do that. I can, I can read the definition, I've got it. I understand what the points to prove are. I, I was very good at all that sort of stuff. I was great at pace, I was great at interviewing, I was, I was good at all that sort of stuff. And so I instantly realized that there was something terribly, terribly wrong with the way that the police were approaching me. And it was only because I mentioned in interview one time that, you know, oh, I happened to be an ex-police officer with Humberside. And it was Humberside that came knocking on my door. And then boom, that's it. Then you're labeled um, former police officer, retired police officer, former chief constable. I've been called the lot. And I was like, no, I was, I was a policeman for two bloody minutes. Uh, <laughs> but, but there we go. There we go. So let's let's talk about. So you do this very short stint, um, all of what just over two years from eighty nine till nineteen ninety one, when you depart um, policing, realise it's not the career for you. It doesn't always work out for everybody. Sometimes it takes that little period to understand whether or not you're best suited to it. And obviously, you found yourself in this very unique environment as an entrepreneur working um, in a dockside, building up a very successful business. For those listeners outside of the UK and, and people that may not be well-travelled within the UK, can you describe Humberside as a community? Yeah, well, Humberside is a made-up um, county um, that doesn't exist anymore, actually. The, the Humberside Police still exists, but it's the, it's the, basically it's the city of Hull on one side of the River Humber, uh, the, the Humber Estuary, which goes into the North Sea, and on the other side there is Grimsby and Immingham and Scunthorpe. Um, so Humberside Police is the is the force that that that, that forces its constabulary that looks after that area. Um, so it's predominantly, I think it's built up on in the past fishing. Grimsby, of course, was a, a an enormous uh, fishing port. Um, attached to that, Grimsby and the surrounding area became the food capital uh, of Europe. It had an excellent um, food technology uh, college in Grimsby. Um, and then the port of Immingham was very, very big on uh, bulk type products, um, particularly since 2000 and I think it was 2001 when the Humber International Coal Terminal opened up. Uh, the port of Immingham became the largest dock uh, in, 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 in the UK by a long, long way. 
to the extent that we, in the first year, I remember, we unloaded 1.6 million tonnes of coal. And wow. at our height, we were unloading 1.6 million tonnes of coal per month. That's the, that's the degree that it grew. So, of course, my business had to scale up uh, exponentially from... Um, you know, from a very, very small business to a, a 24 hour a day, seven day a week uh, business. Uh, and the other, the, the other thing that I'm, I'm quite good at is spotting and retaining very good people. Um, I understand how people operate. I understand how people work. I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm rubbish at. I'm very good at strategic things. I'm very poor at operational things. That's the truth of the matter. But I, but I got people working for me who were excellent operationally, excellent. And the deal was always, you look after me um, in, in the business and I will look after you 100%. Uh, and that's what I did. And we did it very successfully for quite a number of years. So let's talk about this period in 2019. I have to correct me on some dates here, but I'm pretty sure 2019, you're not actually at the office. You receive a phone call from your managing director to say, Harry, I've got a policeman here that needs to speak to you. Something's up. You're obviously slightly alarmed or taken aback, probably more so as to kind of where this has come from. And then everything starts to escalate from there. Talk us through those days and hours and, and what happened. Yeah, so it was it was, it was mid January. Um, I'd been down I'd, I'd been down shopping at Tesco's for for the missus. I was sitting in the car park playing Candy Crush, I think. Um, <laughs> and I got a phone I got a phone call from um, from my, my managing director Daz, uh, and he said we've had the police here. Um, they wanted to speak to you, but you know we didn't give them your number. Uh, but if you want to ring them, we've got their number. So I said, yeah, give me the number. I can't imagine what it's about. Um, no idea. Uh, so I, I rang, and it was a fellow called PC PC Mansur Gull, PC Gull, and uh, he introduced himself as being the um, the, the community liaison officer uh, for Humberside Constabulary. Humberside Constabulary, and he asked me, he said, are, "Are you Harry the Owl on Twitter?" And I thought, right, this is not the conversation I was expecting to have. I was expecting to have some conversation about, you know, plant and machinery um, going down the road the wrong way or something like that. It was not, "Are you Harry the Owl on Twitter?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I am." And he said, right, okay, so we've had a complaint. I said, right, what sort of complaint? And he said, somebody's complained, they've seen your account, uh, account and they're very concerned about the transgender people who work for you. And I just sort of started laughing and said, mate, this is Immingham Dock. We, I don't think we've got any transgender people in Immingham or Immingham Dock, let alone people that work for me. He said, well, nevertheless, um, an individual has highlighted that uh, you're a transphobe and um, the Port of Birmingham may be under your under your leadership a very dangerous place for them to work. And I'm like, now hold on a minute. This is this this is beginning to sound a little bit crazy. With Immingham, literally, it's the sort of place where they still point in the sky when an aeroplane goes past. It's not progressive central at all. It's it is the back of beyond. Um, I said, look. I've been in business for a long, long time. I've never had a single complaint based on anything to do with the Equality Act or the acts that preceded the Equality Act in 2010 at all. So I just don't know where you're going with this. Um, and he, he went on and said, um, well, nevertheless, nevertheless, you've been, you've been identified as being transphobic and this is potentially dangerous. I said, now, let me stop you there. And this is where my uh, police sort of former self kicked in. I said, is there anything that I've done that is criminal? And he said, oh, no, nothing's criminal. I said, right, so why are you ringing me then? And he said, well, I need to check your thinking. And this immediately, immediately set off 
every alarm bell going. And I said, right, let me just get this straight. I've not done anything criminal, no, but you're ringing me up to check my thinking. Yes. I said, have you any idea what that makes you sound like? And he said, no. I said, look, mate, 1984 was a dystopian novel. It is not a police how-to manual. And he went, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. So I explained to him um, Orwell. uh, And I said, this is just not the way we operate. We don't have thought police. So I said, look, what's your evidence? He said, well, we've got 31 tweets. I said, right, and none of them are criminal. He said, no. I said, right, in, in your professional opinion, which one, which one comes the closest to that threshold of criminality where if I'd gone just that little bit further, it would have crossed the line from non-crime to crime? And he said, well, you, you tweeted a, a limerick. And I said, I, I, haven't re- I haven't tweeted a limerick. I've never tweeted a limerick in my life. He said, no, I've got it here. And I said, hold on a minute. He told me what it was. And I said, that's not my limerick. It, one, it's not a limerick. It's a, it, it, it's, it, it's a verse from a, a feminist song. Um, it's not mine. He said, nevertheless, by retweeting it, you endorsed it. I said, but you just told me that there's nothing criminal about it. I mean, I can remember that the beginning of it. It says, your breasts are made of silicon. Your vagina goes nowhere. And we can tell the difference even when you're not there. Your hormones are synthetic. And let's just cross this bridge. What you have, you stupid man, is male privilege. That was it. I mean, it's it's not Shelley or Byron, is it? But neither is it Hitler. It's um, it's just a, a feminist limerick. And he said to me, by retweeting it, you've endorsed it. And this is the thing, Mr. Miller. Unless we intervene, this non-crime incident will escalate to crime. And I said, well, what crime? And he said, well, take, for instance, the murder of Stephen Lawrence. And I'm thinking, you have got to be out of your tiny mind. How is me retweeting a feminist limerick? What's that got to do with the racist, disgusting murder of of Stephen Lawrence? I just, it it was blowing my head. It was just Mm. absolutely blowing my head. And I said, what are the other tweets then? He said, no, we're not going to tell you. I said, you're going to have to apply for them through, through a subject access request. He said, but you're going to have to stop tweeting this sort of stuff. I said, well, how do I know what to stop tweeting if you won't tell me what it is I've tweeted? Um, It took me three months to get the subject access request uh, through and passed. And when it came back, I was stunned at what it was that I tweeted, these other 30 tweets. Because, of course, during that period, I worried myself stupid. Like, had I drunk tweeted something terrible late one Mm. night, you know, whilst I'd had a whiskey? I didn't think that I had. But my wife was saying, what have you said? What have you said? I've got family members who are police who are saying, you must have done something, Harry. It can't just be that limerick. And I said, I don't know. And eventually, when, three months later, when the stuff came back, I read it and I was fuming. I'd said things like, Sheffield women know the difference between lads and lasses. This was classed as a, as a non-crime hate incident. I'd, said, I, I'd mentioned Dame Jenny Murray in a tweet. Now, Dame Jenny Murray, the former... Um, Woman's Hour presenter, had recently had her um, a visitation to Oxford University cancelled because she'd written an article saying that um, human beings don't change sex. And, and me simply mentioning Dame Jenny Murray in a tweet was classed by the Humberside Police as an indicator of, of hate. There were other things. On one tweet, they'd redacted a lot of the tweets. On one of the tweets... Um, I ju- I, all I'd said was, her, H-U-H, with a question mark, her. I couldn't see what I was saying, her, too, because they'd redacted it. I could not imagine 
in what world huh, could possibly be indicative of me being such a transphobe that without the police, I was going to go on to some horrible sort of criminality. Now, we found out what criminality the police had in mind because we asked them. And they were using this thing called the Allport scale, where stage one, which is what I was guilty of, uh, was anti-locution and that sort of um, negative speech. But they say that this is a staging post mm. to stage five, which is genocide. So that without police intervention, I was on the path to creating the social and economic conditions which led to the extermination of a group of people, i.e. the Jews. This, of course, made no sense. So we, we, we issued papers to the Humberside, the Chief Constable of Humberside, saying, you know, you've got to stop doing this, remove this so-called non-crime hate incident. The Chief Constable responded saying that we're following national guidance set out by the College of Policing that's been adopted since 2014. So we made, we made the College of Policing uh, co-defendants and we dragged them both through uh, the High Court through judicial review. Now, during the judicial review process, this is quite interesting, um, that the Humberside police were found to have behaved like the, Char the, 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 the Stasi, the Cheka and the Gestapo uh, by Mr. Julian Knowles. But he said that the guidance itself was lawful. So again, we have this weird position where the guidance is lawful, but following the guidance likens you to the Gestapo. And I, that can't make sense either. So we, we then went back to court. We appealed to the Court of Appeal. Um, and then in late 2021, we got a, a decision that the College of Policing's hate crime guidance was also unlawful. So it was a win-win. You know, it's... <clears throat> you get this phone call from this this constable who you know i i assume he's just he's following instructions from somebody else to carry out this investigation to ask these questions to you yeah so at no stage is he investigating a crime where you should be given a caution no this is this was a horrible thing about non-crime agency because because there is no crime involved and because there is no that there's no proper investigation there's no lawyers involved there's mm. They don't need to. They, 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 they're able to entirely bypass not only PACE, but the custody suite, a custody sergeant, uh, and the, the entire judicial process. So it is, it's de facto um, instant judgment because you are given this non-crime hate incident um, to which there is no appeal whatsoever, no appeal at all, because the, the guidance says that any incident that is perceived by any person, including the victim or any other, or the police, must be recorded as a non-crime hate incident um, if it's perceived that the, the incident was motivated by hostility towards one of the five monitored strands of which gender identity is one of them. And then it goes on even further. The guidance says that no evidence of hate is necessary. It's like, what? So one, we don't need to have a crime. Two, there doesn't need really to be an incident. And three, there doesn't really need, there doesn't need to be any evidence of hate. But that can put an individual like me on a non-crime hate incident database, um, which and my name would remain there for six years, entirely unappealable. But even worse than that, we found out that these non-crime hate incidents were disclosable on an enhanced DBS check. 
So if I was applying for a job at a college, university, a school, a charity, anywhere where it was perceived that I would be exposed to vulnerable people, uh, the chief constable had it within his gift to reveal an enhanced DBS check and scupper my chance of that job. And they argued for this, not only at the High Court, but also at the Court of Appeal. They said that it was entirely justifiable. So at this process, when you find out that you've got all this going on and that this non-hate crime incident is being recorded, it's going to remain on the system for six years, obviously, to that extent, you then begin to take on Humberside and the College yeah. of Policing, which eventually leads to yeah. a victory on the steps of the RCJ in central London. What was, you know, you're a huge supporter of police and policing, as I've said in my opening yes. comments, is an incredibly complex job. And we're asked to be everything potentially to everybody in the communities in terms of supporting a, a multitude of different ethnic backgrounds, people with different beliefs and problems, because there are a lot of marginalised communities that there are the victims to an awful lot of terrible things. But we are seeing more and more policing struggling and grappling with what issues and what groups to support overtly in terms of how they display themselves, how they appear at maybe at gatherings and protests, etc. But equally, policing wants to make sure that it's representative of the communities it polices. And within those, for instance, if we look at the um, LGBTQIA plus um, group, there, you know, there's a representation of that in policing. So is it uh, is what you're saying from the outset that that is a politically based movement? Okay, so there's a whole bunch of things to unpack there. First of all, I will say that the reason that we call mm. ourselves Fair Cop is because we think that cops are fundamentally fair. That's the fact of the matter. I set up Fair yeah. Cop um, with some serving police officers who must, of course, remain absolutely anonymous because they were as appalled as I was about what was happening. Um, when it comes to the, the, the role of the police, um, it, yeah, the, the role of the police is, is, is made very clear in the oath of attestation. Um, and that is, with, with all due diligence, to the best of your ability to uphold uh, the king's peace and, and uphold the law, uh, to protect property and to preserve life. That's exactly, exactly, with, 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 with impartiality. That's what the police are there to do. So you've got to understand, one, what is my job as a police officer? And secondly, who do I serve? Now, people often say the police serve the public, and I say, no, no, they don't. The police serve the Crown. They serve the Crown. Their oath is to the Crown. And that's important because it is only the Crown in, in Britain who is able to limit our freedom. Only the Crown. Because this it, it, it's the Crown through government, it's the Crown through the Crown Prosecution Service, etc., etc. The, the Crown is the symbol of our freedom and the symbol of of the points that our freedom may be justifiably limited. So that's important. Police don't serve the public. They have a public function, but they're serving, in effect, <laughs> the king. Um, and not politicians. They're not serving politicians. Um, second to that is what, is, what does it mean to be political? Okay, Because unless you can define what being political is, you can't avoid it. And again, in the 2014 Code of Ethics... Um, the a police officer is absolutely restricted to be have anything to do with politics. But that's a moot point unless you can define what politics is. 
Now, we all know that, that a police officer cannot, during election time, go electioneering for the Conservatives or the Labour or the Greens. We understand that. But politics is far, far more than that. There are politics around individual campaigns. And any individual campaign will have its slogans. It will have its flags. It will have its supporters. And it will have its detractors. It will have a debate in the newspapers and on the TV. And so we do know what politics is. And if there's a flag, and if there's a debate, and if there's a hashtag or a strapline, or if, if, if there are demonstrations and protests and counter-protests, then it is political. And the police must have nothing, nothing to do with it, other than to make sure that the protests and counter-protests are conducted according to law. But the police must not signal favour to one side or the other at all. Otherwise, we end up with a position where we have a political police force. Now, I think Mr Justice Knowles at the High Court, when he gave his very substantial judgment against the Chief Constable of Humberside, there was one line in there which was standout, where he said, we have never had a Stasi, a Cheka or a Gestapo in this country. That, he didn't, he didn't say that because he wanted to get a Daily Mail headline. He didn't say that because he was being hyperbolic. He said that, I believe, because he saw the direction of travel and it frightened him and it worried him and he sent out a siren call. This is where political policing go. If you start tying your boots with rainbow laces, if you start carrying the flag of Black Lives Matter, if you start passing out tea to the eco-zealots who have glued themselves to the road, if you start using hashtags like trans women are women um, in, on, on your social media accounts, then you're instantly identifiable with a political side. And we cannot have that. That is incompatible with British policing. Would you agree, you know, people will say, rightly or wrongly, that some of these particular groups, and let's take Black Lives Matter as a particular example, because it's obviously front of mind, certainly in the last few years, is that people from ethnic minorities, people from black communities have been the victims, and especially within policing, to abhorrent behaviour, racism, um, you know, that they, they uh, from marginalised communities have, have been, has been shown that, you know, for instance, incarceration rates of black people is far higher than from white people. It, you know, policing wants to show its support for these people that it, it it stands beside them in terms of fighting those incidents of racism and hate towards those communities are you saying that it's appropriate for the police to support them but equally for instance not to engage in taking the knee as an example yeah i think you've got to i think you've got to differentiate between the politics of a group and the group itself, the individuals within that group. So if, if, if it's right that there is um, systemic racism within the police force, then the place that you need to sort it out is the police force. You need to sort out your officers. You need to sort out the training. You need to sort out your recruitment and your retention. And then second to that, you need to sort out how you interface with those communities. That's what you, that's what you need to do. What you don't do is start, in order, to, in order to show your support, start adopting the politics of one particular sector, militant sector of the black community, as though there is one community of black people, which of course is nonsense, there isn't. Um, what you don't do is start adopting the politics of one, one particular aspect of that group. And because there's two things wrong with that. One, it's wrong in and of itself because the police must never be involved in politics. But secondly, it gives the impression that you're doing something 
But what you're actually doing is signalling to one tiny minority group whilst the actual substance of the problems are, con continue to be ignored. That's, where, that's what I would say to that. But, but it requires honesty. It requires honesty. And all you need to do is go, does Black Lives Matter have a manifesto? Does it have a political agenda? The answer is yes, absolutely 100%. You can Google it within, two, within 10 seconds. In which case, you cannot adopt the slogans, the flags, or the hashtags. You cannot do that because at that point, you have become political. Let me take, give you an example um, from a friend of mine who's the form, former uh, Assistant Chief Constable of Merseyside. Now, in Merseyside, there is a huge Irish uh, uh, population, massive Irish population. And of course, you know, they bring, they bring with them their prejudices and troubles uh, over from, the, from their homeland over in Ireland, over into Liverpool. Of course they do. Now, once a year, uh, there, is the, there is the Orange Parade, where, the, where, where the, the Protestants, or a certain order of Protestants, get together. And they put on a great, a great show. They, they put on their finest, their orange bits and pieces. They get their bands and their drums and their flutes and whistles. And they, they march through a, a, a push to Merseyside. Now, the Assistant Chief Constable told his officers, if you were on duty that day, do not even accidentally march or walk in tune with the, in time with a drum in case it signals political support. Now, we've gone from that, which I think is perfectly sensible, to at a Pride march, literally providing the band. The police are literally providing the band in some of these Pride marches. They are proudly marching in lockstep with the beat of the drum. And Pride is every bit as much political and politically divisive as the Orange Parade. That's all we're asking for is be sensible. Don't go to work that day wearing orange. Don't go onto the streets that day and with, with riot shields which have been painted orange. Don't go to, onto the streets that day you know, pretending that you're playing a flute. Because these things, we know that these things are political and if they're political, the police must have nothing to do with them. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Now, it's back to the episode. There was a quote um, from uh, from a chief constable in terms of policing is not just about enforcement and patrol, but about engagement, understanding, and being part of the community. If 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 you've got a community a pride event and you're sending officers along to support that event to show their sort of um, showing their support with this community, that can be the victim of abhorrent acts. You know, and, and, and police stations fly these particular flags on these particular days. Is that too close for comfort in your view? It's not too close for comfort. It's gone way over the line. It's gone absolutely way over the line. It's the same if you, you know, let, let's, let's just say we're approaching the 2019 election, general election. Would it be okay for the police to fly flags that say for the many, not the few? No, because it's political. And you can't get away with going, yes, but for, men, for the many, not the few, it's just a phrase that, that, that captures democracy. We're all Democrats, aren't we? No, no, it's political. You cannot get involved with anything that is 
political. You can't. So what you do, if you're a police officer tasked, um, uh, tasked to uh, deal with pride, what you do, you go down there, you, 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 you police it with a big smile on your face, you high five people, you're pleasant to people, and that and that, that's the way you do it. You don't need to don their colours and tie your laces up in rainbows uh, and do all that sort of nonsense, put rainbow things on your faces and decorate your, your helmet. You don't need to do any of that because all you're doing there is showing political affiliation with pride and you're severely pissing off those who, who politically are against pride. So don't do it. Now, there is some compromise here. I had this conversation with the Chief Constable of Humberside after I'd beaten him uh, at the court. I said, look, uh, Lee Freeman, excellent fella. I said, look, Lee, he, he gave me that argument. Look, the LGBT community have been served badly um, by, by the police in the past. I said, right, okay, so number one, don't serve them badly in the future. I would rather you didn't march in pride at all, but if you must march in pride, if you must, then how about this? How about you tell your police, police officers to put on their best bib and tucker, stripped of anything other than name, rank, num you know, rank and number, and uh, force insignia, that's it, and march beneath the banner that says, serving all our communities without fear or favour. That way, you're signalling to the people who are in pride that you're for them because they're part of the community, whilst not simultaneously pissing off those of us who think pride is an abhorrent political movement. It's easy. It just takes it takes common sense and an understanding of what politics is and an understanding that it is absolutely imperative that the police don't go anywhere near being political. Has <clears throat> there are an ever increasing a number of police services across the UK that um, both support, fly flags, have their police cars marked up in pride colours to support um, people from, from, these, from these groups and backgrounds that have been victims to shocking treatment. Have we now gone past the point of return? Is that the challenge? Is that the worry? Because it's actively going on as we speak. You know, how do, we, how, how do chief constables, how does the Home Secretary, who oversees all these bodies, deal with this issue? Right, well, I, I, was, I was lucky enough to be at the meeting that you were at the other day where I asked the Home Secretary, what does it mean to be political? Uh, because chief constables don't seem to know. And she, she gave the example of gender criticality. She gave the example of flying rainbow flags and um, trans rights flags. Whatever you think as a police officer, um, you, you might you might absolutely believe trans women are women. You might believe the entire the entire agenda. But if you're a police officer, we don't need to know. We, you, we, and you have an obligation not to bring whatever your politics are, whatever your beliefs are, to the station, to the uniform. And chief constables have a job to make sure that all of their police cars look like police cars, not political police cars. Let's take, for instance, the, um, the, the rallies that have recently been in Hyde Park run by um, Kelly J, uh, aka Posey Parker. Now, at these rallies, um, there are a bunch of gender-critical women flying the suffragette flag, and then very often there will be an entire bunch of um, trans-right activists flying the rainbow flag. Can a police car turn up wearing painted in rainbows to that event? Of course it can't because it will signal that the police are on one side and one side only of that demonstration. So if you can't deploy a police car because it's got rainbows pointed down the side of it to an event, it shouldn't be painted in rainbows. It's as simple as that. Get it looking neutral. Get it with the get get it looking like a police car. That's all that's all we ask. We don't want police officers there with rainbow laces. 
We don't want police officers there with little badges that say trans women are women or with, you know, with the, um, the pink, white and, and baby blue um, in, insignia on them because it indicates that you've taken a side and you've taken a position. And that gives the reasonably informed member of the public, which is the test, reason to believe that you will not serve with due impartiality. One of the greatest challenges I think facing British policing at the moment is probably um, the increasing number of people leaving the service with an absolute wealth of experience and knowledge and expertise, which I think from time to time is exposed when, when, when officers sadly go to incidences and don't seem to know as much information as I think we would like them to know in terms of when to give cautions, in terms of powers, policies, regulations, etc. And I suppose I'm, I'm falling back on an incident last year where you, you were arrested for, for obstructing police um, as a result of, a, of an army veteran who retweeted a tweet by Lawrence Fox um, of a flag, which, if orientated one particular way, could be misrepresented as a sort of swastika-type scenario. I think that's how it was interpreted. Um, that individual was um, had an attendance by police who, again, were investigating that matter in terms of the offence it had caused. Uh, that Obviously, that particular incident to which you and then Lawrence responded to in terms of providing some support and oversight and challenge around that particular issue got global media coverage around the police's handling of that particular case and, and your ultimate arrest for obstruct. Are you able to kind of talk us through that? And from the element in terms of, from my perspective, the sort of knowledge base of the police around these issues? Yeah, well, this, this army veteran, um, I think he served 25, 30 years with the, with the, with the um, Royal Green Jackets. He's got a chest full of medals, including for bravery and for you know, great conduct and all the rest of it. And he, he's, he's sort of semi-traumatised, I think, because of his service. Uh, and so his house is just covered in CCTV cameras. There's, they're everywhere. So I think it was one weekend, um, two police officers uh, turned up at his house. And it's, it's all caught on camera. And the very first thing that he asked them is, have I committed a crime? And they say, yes, you've committed a crime. Now, at that point, I know that Pace says, when you, when you suspect that there is a crime, you have to give the caution. There's no caution. They take him around to the back of his house. They sit down at a table outside. It's all filmed. And they explain to him again that on the, on, on the basis that somebody was offended by this, this, this flag post on a Facebook group where all his only comment was, what do we think of this? In other words, what's our opinion of the flag? He was neither endorsing it nor criticising it. He was simply inviting comment about it. They told him that on the basis of somebody being offended, an anonymous person being offended, he had committed a crime. Uh, they, 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 they entirely confused what crime it was. They quoted little bits from the Communications Act and little bits um, from the uh, Public Order Act, but they couldn't clearly identify what the crime was. And then they told him, look, this is the option. We're either going to prosecute you or you're going to hand over £60 and we're going to send you on a re-education course. And he said, well, hold on a minute. I've got time to have a little think about this. And what about the Harry Miller case? And they said, well... What about the Harry Miller case? And he said, well, uh, he said, well you, you should understand the Harry Miller case and the Court of Appeal. And they said to him, unless you've, got a, unless you've got a copy of the Court of Appeal case written to you, it doesn't count. Like, well, this is non nonsense. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he said, look, can you come back in a week's time? And they said, yeah, OK, we'll come back in a week's time. I said, I just need some time to think about it. 
So he got hold of me. We looked, we reviewed the footage. I was utterly stunned at what I'd seen. Absolutely stunned. So I thought, right, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go around to the house. We're going to sit in the kitchen with the film crew. And when they come round again, the second that they, they, they get into this territory of, of bullying and basically a shakedown, a 60-pound shakedown, uh, we're going to come out and challenge them. And that's what we did. We, we burst out the kitchen. Them. I introduced them myself. I, I told them the relevant section of pace that they'd, uh, that they'd failed to uh, apply. They said that pace didn't count until they got to the police station. I said, this is absolute nonsense. Um, they invited um, the army veteran to come in for interview. He said no. And they said, well, unless you come in voluntarily, we're going to arrest you. And at that point, I stood up and said, to arrest him, you're going to have to arrest me because you are not arresting that man. So they called for backup. They ended up, I think, six or seven officers, a number of cars. Um, and after a, a short sort of standoff, um, where I explained to them again, uh, pace and, um, uh, and, and criminality, um, I was arrested. Um, following my arrest, he was arrested. He was let go virtually immediately after he got to the station. Uh, they kept me inside for about seven hours, I think. Um, I had a, a, a really good interview, actually, not with the arresting crew. The arresting crew were absolutely... You look into their eyes and there was nothing there. They, they utterly believed what they were doing. Uh, they didn't know why they were doing it, but they were, it was like looking into dead people's eyes. There was, but where have they where have they got that from? Where, I honestly where... don't. I honestly don't know. But there was no appealing to them at all. There was like, this is not why you joined the police. Do you not understand that pace is important? That pace applies. You can't just go around issuing threats and doing shakedowns with people. You you can't do this. And they just looked utterly utterly dead-eyed. Now, what was quite interesting is one of the officers had a rainbow um, uh, badge attached to them. So that told me pretty much everything I needed to know about that particular officer. Now, I was, I was in the cells for a number of hours, and then around about midnight, something like that, six hours later, um, I got taken out for interview by the interview team. And that was quite interesting because I knew what my defence was straight away, that um, the offence is obstructing a police officer in the lawful execution of their duty. My defence was this was not lawful execution of duty, therefore I'd committed no crime. Uh, what was really interesting was that not only did they let me give um, uh, an unchallenged 20, 25 minute uh, defence on, on, on tape, but when they took me back to the cell, the copper looked round and he said, Harry, we're all massive fans. Fair cops doing absolutely brilliant work. Is there anything at all you want from the canteen? Because I'll go get it for you. Keep up the good work. And I thought, this is, this is real policing. This is a real officer who understands that he's been asked to do something which is complete and utter bollocks. And of course, it, 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 the whole thing was dropped. The chief constable uh, had their, who was retiring, had their position at the College of Policing, I think rescinded. Um, the, the, the PCC came out the following morning condemning the force and we, we, we highlighted um, because we live streamed this to about four or five million people I think uh, we highlighted to the world just how far our police force has fallen ideologically Who defines what the definition is of offence and the only way I, the only reason why I bring up this scenario is that I can already think off the top of my head three or four comedians in the UK that if you go to one of their shows or if you were to read their Twitter accounts, they would be incredibly offensive. And, you know, in terms of some of the yeah. jokes that they, they make against different groups and about different scenarios and different issues, where does that definition come from in terms of offence and then 
gross offensiveness? You know, wh- wh- where's that? Who 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 sets that boundary? Right. Okay. Okay. So. One, it's very, very, it's very important to understand that being offensive is not an offence. This, this was made absolutely clear in my uh, High Court ruling where the judge reiterated the fact that uh, a freedom that does not include the right to offend is not a freedom worth having. So the, 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 there is that. Again, uh, the police have been very unclear about that because if you remember last year, I think it was, maybe the year before, we caught uh, Merseyside police pulling round uh, the Wirral a 10-foot sign on the back of a trailer that said being offensive is an offence. And we went, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. Take that trailer, take that sign down, because being offensive is not an offence. You're right. Gross offensiveness is an offence, is a criminal offence. Now, what does grossly offensive mean? Well, it gets back down to the definition, I think, is set by the, the person on the Clapham omnibus, the reasonably informed person. So I always use the example of if a, hus- if, if, if a ex-boyfriend sends to their girlfriend uh, through electronic means uh, a dick pic, that's grossly offensive. So don't do it. It's against the law. It's not telling a joke in public. It's not, it's not being satirical. It's not being sardonic. Is it? That is, we would understand that that is something that is grossly offensive. If somebody sends pictures of um, ISIS doing a beheading to somebody, then we go, hold on, this is unwanted. This is grossly offensive. We don't want it. There is an element of common sense that we have to attach when we, def- when, when we distinguish gross offence from offence. Now, fortunately, there's an entire bank of, uh, of statutory law and common law that helps us to understand what gross offence is, as opposed to simple offence. The problem is, the police are not even attempting to make the distinction between something that's offensive and something that is grossly offensive. And that's where the problem lies. There are always going to be grey areas. We live in a, we live in a, uh, a, a, a land where everything is free up until the point where it is defined as being not free. And this is very much different to the European Napoleonic model, where the state dictates to you what you can, what you can do. It's a system of permissions. And this is why we have very high, highly paid barristers and highly paid judges, because these lines are sometimes not clear. But what we can say, without any fear of contradiction, that criticising a flag or, or manipulating a flag so that it gives the impression of being a Nazi flag is not even in the foothills of being grossly offensive. It's offensive to a certain group, absolutely, but being offensive is not an offence. And we have to, we absolutely have to protect and cherish the right to offend. So there's two organisations I wanted to kind of quickly reflect on because there's thousands and thousands of men and women who go out every day and do, you know, an incredible job. You know, I call them extraordinary people doing extraordinary work. They go to, they're running at the danger as we're all running the other way because they've just, you know, they've, they've, they're just so committed to supporting us all. Who then at the top of this sort of Christmas tree, if we describe it, is making these decisions, is forming this policy is, and, is, and is encouraging officers to go out there and to police these particular does it sit just with the college of policing are these the people that are that are developing this policy and these these regulations for for, for for street cops to police no no it's not the college of policing aren't helping 
uh, at all, and they're codifying a lot of this nonsense. Uh, but equality and diversity departments are doing a lot of, of this damage. So you get a situation where you can say, historically, the police have been a little bit racist uh, or a little bit homophobic. Uh, so what w the right thing to do with that is to stop being racist and to stop being homophobic. But that never seems to be enough. They have to seem to be anti-homophobia and anti-racism, if you like, in order to readdress, uh, to redress uh, the, the, the balance of past sins. And what they do at that point is they tend to farm out uh, their policymaking to uh, third parties. So third parties like Stonewall. Uh, and we've FOI'd a huge swathe of police documents uh, where the co-author of these documents is someone from Stonewall. Well, you, you can't do that because at that point you are, you are letting a overtly political organisation, and Stonewall is political, we know this, because in 2019 they published the, the 2019 Stonewall General Election Manifesto, you were letting a clearly political association write your EDI policy for you. That can't be right. Just obey the law. It's not hard. The Equalities Act has been around since 2010. Most small organisations cannot afford to be members of a alliance scheme or a stonewall scheme or have a special EDI uh, department, they get by by obeying the law. It's not hard. Obey the law. And if you, the police, can't obey the Equality Act, how can the rest of us? And if you, the police, can only obey the Equality Act, providing that you farm out uh, the nitty-gritty of it to a third party and pay vast amounts in order for that privilege, how are the rest of us going to get by? So don't do it. Just obey the law. Stop being racist, stop being homophobic, and obey the law. It's really, really simple. That, that comes with uh, quite a, a, a degree of training to, to, to educate officers on what is right, what is wrong, what is expected in society. You know, you know, the Metropolitan Police has just been handed probably one of the most troubling reports it has ever since McPherson in terms of institutionally racist, institutionally homophobic, um, institutionally misogynistic. You know, these are three horrific areas as an example of sort of how to then senior officers correct these behaviors educate their staff without being seen as being politicized with any one particular cohort that's associated with these negative findings well the, the, again the short answer is don't be i mean just just don't be don't be racist don't treat somebody differently on the basis of the color of their skin i mean that's not hard. You either, you're either going to do that or you're not going to do that. I don't see how a vast amount of training is going to make that any different. When it comes to misogyny, it would be a really great start if you could define what a woman is. Don't, don't, don't combat misogyny, but then, then sort of go all wibbly-wibbly when somebody asks you what the definition of a woman is. You can't defend what you can't define. And this is the other thing. You know, you talked earlier about the, um, the vulnerability of the LGBTQ community, and that may be one of the reasons why they have rainbow cars. Look, we know for a fact, without question, two women are killed every single week in the UK at the hands of a male. Where are the, the police cars that say adult human female on them? Where are the police cars with pictures of dead women on them? Where are they? Where are the flags that fly above um, headquarters uh, showing the suffragette flag? Where are they? They're not there because they understand that they're political. They understand that it's not appropriate. Um, and they, but they've made a decision that when it comes to the LGBT community, they're going to do all that. They don't believe it. They don't believe it saves anybody. 
They're pushing a political cause. If they did believe it saved people and stopped murders and this, that, and the other, where are the cards with pictures of Stephen Lawrence on them? There aren't any. There never have been any. They don't believe it themselves. So, the, again, the short answer is obey the law. Don't be racist. Don't be a misogynist. Understand and learn what a woman is if you don't know. And don't behave badly towards women. It's, it's, I think it's very, very straightforward. I say on Immingham Dock, uh, with some of the roughest characters you are ever going to meet anywhere, we managed to get through many, many years, many years, all those years, without having a single accusation of racism, homophobia or misogyny. So if I can do it, you know, back end of beyond Harry Miller, uh, working at the Port of Immingham, why can a police force not? One question I had come in once, you know, some of my followers found out that I was going to be interviewing you about this quite, it's an incredibly important topic in terms of police and politics, was that uh, it was wondered if you were equally concerned about problematic right-wing political interference as you are problematic left-wing interference. I don't, I don't distinguish between left and right. If it's political and it's interference, um, then it's wrong. For instance, yesterday uh, when I, I was busy watching the coronation, uh, I'm, a, I'm an ardent monarchist, um, when I saw the headlines uh, saying that the police had confiscated and were locking up um, the anti-monarchists, they're not my king lot, we immediately put out a, a tweet um, saying that uh, on today of all days uh, is not the, 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 not the day to be, to, to be policing like that. Now, it may have been, you know, I, I didn't have the full fact. So it may be that in actual fact, those arrests were entirely justified. And so I was quite careful with how I worded it. But no, of course, I, I'm, I'm very, very concerned about any form of politics in any form of policing. It just so happens that the politics that seems to be infiltrating policing is, number one, um, LGBT rainbow politics. Well, that transcends both left and right. Um, Black Lives Matter, which I suppose is a little bit more left than, than, than right. Um, the eco-warrior lot, uh, which... Again, I think transcends left and right, doesn't it? I'm not entirely sure. But people, if people criticise my politics, what they really mean is they criticise the, the some of the platforms that I've been on. But my view is, I'm a free speech. I, I, I'm I'm a free speecher, and if you're not locked up in jail and you want me to come and talk to you about the law and free speech, I'll talk to you. I don't. I'm not going to distinguish between. You know, I've been on. What's weird is I got no criticism at all for going on Sean Atwood's podcast, and he's an ex. Um, you know, ex sort of drug kingpin. There was no problem there. But the second I turned up on, say, I don't know, James Dellingpole, then suddenly I'm a, I'm a right-wing Nazi conspiracy theorist nut. Well, I'll talk to anybody. I'll talk to anybody. It just so happens that it tends to be um, the, the more, I suppose, the more orthodox conservative platforms that want to talk to me because the, 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 the radical left... Um, see me as a a, a a Nazi who needs no platforming and won't give me the time of day, but I'll talk to anybody. W would you agree that, you know, there are groups, you know, as we've said before, from ethnic minorities and the LGBTQ communities that have been victims to really bad behaviour in the past? And how can policing going forward support those groups? Is it a case of what you said before in terms of don't need to fly flags, just get out there, smile, tell everyone you're there to support everybody, not particularly one group. That's what that that's what you'd like to see going forward. Yeah. And, and I think it's it's absolutely right to look at certain communities and sort of slice slice the salami so you know you know which are the groups that have the most problems that are mm. traditionally and currently uh, most susceptible to being 
um, the subject of uh, of crime and and put your resources towards them. Of course, that's the right thing to do. The problem is we have a whole bunch of provably misinformation around the LGBTQ community. So you will hear all the time about how there is how we're on the cusp of a trans genocide. How you will hear how a trans people are the most vulnerable people in society. Well, let's have a look at what the stats say about this, shall we? But first of all, let's look about uh, what North Yorkshire police say about this. Because on their website, on their Twitter feed, it says that what there are one in 12 trans women at risk of murder. One in 12. Now, given that there are around about a quarter of a million to half a million trans women in the UK, that is a lot of murders. A lot of murders. Do you know the actual number? One in the last 10 years. One in the last 10 years. Not one in 12, one in the last 10 years. They say, ah, oh, well, we're talking globally. We're talking globally, not locally. Do you know with the number? Around about 367 in a year. That's not genocide. And when you set that against the two women a week who were murdered in the UK alone, in the UK alone, if we're going to do this targeted policing, then that's where we need to be looking. We need to be looking at why is it that women are being murdered and, or, or unlawfully killed at that sort of rate, rather than falling for these absolutely provably nonsense statistics that certain sections of the police are spouting forth as fact. I want to sort of round out and just talk about Fair Cop. It's an, in, it's an incredible platform in the sense of the amount of people that follow and interact with the information and the tweets and, and what you're putting out in terms of this this movement to ensure that politics doesn't get into policing and doesn't bed itself in there. Um, what's the future like for you in terms of growing that organization? What are the what are the what are the goals? What do you want to achieve? As Faircop, I'm I'm increasingly being contacted by police officers who find themselves in trouble. Uh, particularly around sort of political issues, free speech issues, etc., and who are let down by their colleagues in the Federation. Uh, the Federation approach seems to be increasingly, um, phew, you're bang to rights, admit, I just, just, just admit it and we'll come in and um, we'll mitigate uh, whatever punishment there's going to be. Now, for, again, for me, that, 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 that's an assault on natural justice. Natural justice has got to be, you know, what do you, what do you, the person who's accused, think? Do you think you did it or do you not think you did it? And me as your representative, a good representative, a good federation will go, we're going to fight your position for you. Absolutely fight your position for you. And increasingly, I'm seeing that this is not happening. So one of the things that I would, I would like to do is to have an open membership for fair cops. So police officers, rather than having to contact us on the, on, on the sly and, you know, behind anonymous accounts and... Uh, by putting 10 P's in a telephone box so their phone phone can't be traced, where, where they are openly allowed to be members of, of, of Fair Cop. And where Fair Cop can, where it's appropriate, step in and give advice and advocate for these officers. And I think we're getting there. Initially, we were seen as a political organisation of troublemakers. Well, we're, we're, we're not. What we advocated for was for the police to to obey the law around Article 10. And both the High Court and then the Court of Appeal found that we were right, found in our favour. So we are not an organisation that exists to change the law at all. We are there to make sure that the law is upheld and is applied without political influence and without fear or favour. So when I find police officers being caught up in some of this political nonsense, for instance, again, North Yorkshire Police, of all the places, uh, we caught them, we caught their chief officers 
giving a pledge um, to, I think, Stonewall or Pride or something. And um, we said, what is this pledge? We asked them via an FOI, what is this pledge? Initially, they said, oh, there is no pledge. And I said, well, you know, if you're going to say there is no pledge, how about you don't advertise it all over your Facebook page? And we showed them the photographs. And clearly, right there, there's a senior officer and a load of other officers giving a pledge. So I said, what's the wording of the pledge? We don't know. Well, find out. Well, we don't know who to ask. I said, well, you can see there, there's an assistant chief constable right there in the picture. You ain't got many of them. Go and ask him. Oh, no, he, he can't find it. And then we asked the question, what is the consequence of, for, a, for a police officer who refuses to make that pledge? And they returned, their, their, their reply was, this is a vexatious question we're not going to answer. Now that, that is terrifying, absolutely terrifying. So I worry very much for North Yorkshire police officers because they are being coerced into signalling, taking pledges and blah, blah, blah. And we don't know what the consequences are for them saying, hmm, thank you, I'm going to give this one a miss. So I would very much like, if it was possible, to have a, an open fair cop membership where we could um, get organised and advocate. Well, Harry, it's been a fascinating one-hour discussion with you in terms of getting your views and opinions on what is an increasingly uh, more front-of-mind topic in terms of where are the lines that police should be policing, what shouldn't they be policing. It is an incredibly complex vocation. I'm one of the biggest supporters of policing out there, as are are you. It's just you would like to see them doing yeah. the work that ultimately I think the general public want them to do, which is to fight crime, to lock up the bad guys and girls and to, and to put them away. Thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. We wish you the, the best of luck with Fair Cop and, uh, and and hope that you can make the difference that you set out to make a difference for. Uh, Ollie, it's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I think I think all police officers, any police officer listening to this, well done. Thanks, Harry. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast produced, created and hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Sound editing support by Jack Lawrence. <laughs>